Doctors Unmasked podcast. Welcome to another exciting episode of Doctors Unmasked with me, Dr. Masi Korir. And today I'm joined by a colleague, a consultant surgeon who has come all the way from Meru County to record this podcast. His journey is interesting. You'll get to hear about it, how he made it from Meru to the city and back to the county to offer help in his surgical skills as a consultant surgeon. That is Dr. Stanley Aruyaru Mwenda. I always have to be careful about Aruyaru because, you know, it may slip and I may say things that are not supposed to be said. Karibu sana, Dr. Thank you, Dr. Masikoriri. Good afternoon, good morning from wherever you're listening from. It's a pleasure to be here. Asante sana. So, what inspired you to become a doctor? Everyone has a story I've come to realize. Every doctor has a reason why they wanted to be a doctor. What about you? Uh, thank you for that question. It's an interesting question. What inspired me to be a doctor? I wish I could put a finger to it, but perhaps I can put a story to it. I remember, as I have mentioned previously, as a young, ambitious boy, uh, our class teacher asking, what do you want to become when you grow up? You know, we went around us raising our hands. And uh, when it got to me, I shouted, President! Of course, <laughs> in, my, <laughs> in, in, my, in my uninformed uh, raw ambition, so to speak. But uh, when I finished class eight, and I was supposed to join provincial secondary school, I remember when my dad came to pick the admission letter, the teachers asked him, so where are you taking this boy? And he said, I don't have money to take him to high school. I'm going to take him to the village polytechnic where he will learn to become a driver and a mechanic, motor vehicle driver and mechanic. And then one of the teachers, a senior teacher, then told him, no, do not do that because if you do that, you deny us our first doctor in the village. Uh, that's, that's, that's folklore. And I don't know if that was what was then subconsciously planted in my mind so that I would pursue medicine later. But I remember that when I joined high school, it is medicine that had not been conquered. In fact, a word was continuously from the curriculum master and from all the teachers to encourage us that we have produced engineers from this high school, we've produced teachers, we've produced all kinds of professionals except two law and medicine, and therefore I, I was inclined to sciences, so I, I, I preferred medicine because it had not been conquered. And up to today, I don't know if it's a shame or privilege to say I am the only doctor who has come from that high school. So I think that as well may have pushed me to conquer what no one has and conquered. Mm -hmm. And then the rest, as they say, is history. one decade of history. <laughs> so which primary school, which high school was this? Thank you, Marcy. My Is it one of those that we cannot pronounce the names? Oh, well, yes. The primary okay. school is difficult to pronounce. It's Lailoba, Lailoba Primary School, deep in uh, Tigane East, sub-county of Meru County. Lailoba Primary School is where I sat for my KCPE. Mm -hmm. And I got a grade that stood for quite some years, actually more than 15 or so years wow. before someone else could get that wow. average. Not because I was very bright, but because I think the resources and the input we get, the little kids, there might not be optimum to get them super performing. Mm -hmm. And then I was admitted to a provincial school by the name St. Cyprian. It's also in Tigani sub-county, so it, it is a walking distance. Mm -hmm. a seven-kilometer walking distance from my home to the school. Mm -hmm. 
and this school might be in the memory of many Kenyans in the bad books. We remember in 1991 it was the former St. Kizito where there had been a really nasty strike and a couple of girls had been injured and some of them lost their lives before the school could be split into two. So it was closed down, split into two, St. Cyprian for the boys. That is the old school, and then an adjacent school was built for girls called St. Angela's. So, yes, I trained in St. Cyprian High School mm-hmm. in Meru County. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. What was it that changed your dad's mind from wanting you to go to a polytechnic and become a mechanic to actually now taking you to high school? Maybe divine providence, but the, 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 it was more or less like forced on us, really. We didn't, we didn't now change tack and move to high school. The teachers and the parents in the locality and the primary school ganged together and invoked our national motto, Harambe, you know. And through Harambe, I got to high school. And then through a couple of other support here and there, I got to finish high school. So getting into high school was a tussle in itself. I actually remember reporting on the same day the rest of the people, the students were reporting back from midterm, and then it was catch up to clear first term and then catch up by second term to get into the rhythm of the school. And then by the second year in in secondary school, we had had enough by way of... Uh, at least we had had enough from the fees raised in the fundraiser to get me through to by to second second year of uh, secondary school and from there then it was you know going for school fees getting some but what is it called bursary here right. and there from the ministry etc and again as i say the rest is history <laughs> the rest is history so it wasn't really a decision by my parents but rather we were forced by circumstances which were good circumstances by decision from the teachers of my former primary school and the neighbors coming together to do a fundraiser and then once we were in there it was difficult to fall out of school despite the challenges in mm-hmm. school fees persisting okay yes. so did your dad ever believe that anything good would come out of the persistence and the insistence of the community, literally, um, for you to go to school. Because if you look at it, you're literally a product of the community, if I may say it like that. So did he think that anything like this would come out of it? We can only imagine what we've seen and we can only, you know, dream big if we had, we've, we've had the chance to experience such. And I don't think I would blame my dad because in, in our family, I think I was the first, not I think, I was the first to get to high school by that, lev- by that time. I am still the only from my family, the only child to have had, you know, university training and even postgraduate training. So we were coming from a point where, as dad would put it in a defeatist way, we are not them, them meaning those who can go to high school and, you know, secure white-collar jobs and all that. And uh, that was born of his experience because he has not been to school himself. Uh, even my mom has not been to school herself. So I was brought up in, in a family of, say, illiterate parents. And you can look at it and question their intention, but then you can understand them that they could only see 
to a certain horizon based on their exposure and experience in life. So the good thing is that did not fight when the community said we want you to take this route. He more or less like resigned and said, okay, you want that? Okay, then let's do that. And uh, the challenges that came later only pale in comparison to what has come out of this initiative. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. So after high school, what did you score and what was your immediate reaction? This is interesting. First, the run-up to the, to the exams was quite interesting. We had a couple of upheavals as, as, as students, you know, going on strike or demonstrating a couple of times in my candidate year. And then when we were supposed to sit for mocks, I remember we went on rampage again and therefore we couldn't sit the mocks, the KCSE preparatory mocks. And that means we became the laughing stock of the rest of the schools around. I remember my colleagues from neighboring schools telling me, oh, you guys from St. Cyprian, you panicked and went on strike and you couldn't see the mocks. And then when the time came for the third term to now really prepare for the final exams, there was a nationwide teacher's strike called by NAT. If you remember this time when, you know, the sundown days of the Kano government and when uh, the opposition was coming in, you know, in this whirlwind and saying, we will sort out the teacher's problems in 100 days. So this was the year when I was to see KCSE 2002, those who I remember. So it was a tension-packed year and even in the run-up to the exam, we are actually, we weren't certain that we would get teachers to supervise the exam and I remember all manner of area education officers and zonal education officers coming for the rehearsal preparing to individually the exam until just the day after Kenyatta Day the strike was called off and therefore we had teachers to invigilate. So that is the run up in a nutshell. When the exam came, it was uh, it was it was a mixed bag of feelings. You know, you leave a paper and you feel, well, it might go like this, and I could actually get a B plus or an A. It might go like this, I might get a C plus or even a C. <laughs> you know, we've all been yeah. there. And then over time, so the exam was over, and then over time, the problem was also the waiting time. You are done with the exams by early November. The KCSE results will come out in February, February. of the following year. Mm. So you have had an occupied months of months and months of you know thinking and regurgitating and imagining. Sometimes imagining the worst. If I thought secondary school was going to be my savior, what will happen if I don't score enough to? join university as a regular student. So sometimes I would uh, wake up on the on one side of the bed and imagine, ah, I think I can get an A. And other times I'd wake up and say, oh my God, even a C plus <laughs> might as well jump through. So it was a, a tumultuous moment for me. And uh, by the time the results came out, I had now gotten a job, a very, very interesting job. My first job was uh, as a salesperson for a certain beer company. So we distribute beer <laughs> along certain corners of, uh, of the Meru County. And all this time, at least I got the distraction. But when the results came, I listened and I had my colleague and friend who we've interacted uh, previously, Dr. Karao, mm, be mentioned good. as the top student. And... Uh, I was like, okay, fine, I will wait for the next day to go and buy the newspaper. I remember I had saved specifically some money to just go and uh, buy the newspaper. When the newspaper came, I went, picked it, and I didn't even bother to look at the front page that had ranked, you know, the top 100 national students. 
But I just went to my province, eastern province, and then began from number 100. Bottom up. Yes, I went up, I went up, I went up, I went up, I went up. I couldn't find. The first round, I didn't find my name. The second round, I found my name. And, uh, you know, the composite score then was uh, 79 point something. On, on the ag- aggregate, I know Bundy had 81 point something, if I remember. Mm-hmm. But when you look at the score now, of course, it was a plain A of uh, 81 points. Mm-hmm. on select uh, seven subjects that are picked out of the eight that are taken. So this was a moment that was a little confusing. I was away. I know now I was a celebrity in absentia <laughs> from the village because I was away hawking uh, bottles of uh, beer, beer <laughs> in another in another town. And uh, I planned to travel back over the weekend and go hear what people are saying. This day, I think I couldn't get, I couldn't catch catch a matatu in time. So <laughs> by the time I got, you know, like to attend church where there was this mega deception and parishioners were buying us eggs and you know all those other farm produce to celebrate us. I, I met with people coming back from church and telling me how eggs had been bought in my absentia and all that. And at least there was a colleague also from a nearby school who was a villager, who is a village mate uh, by Dambo Mudamia. He's an advocate. He, he, he was there at least to receive on behalf of the two of us from the village. So in a nutshell, though it was, there wasn't really a grandiose moment for me to celebrate, but it was a strong it it was a strong moment and turning point for me to win my own trust, for me to win my own trust. And I think th- th- then I felt, yes, I can do this. Yes, I can now conquer the world because of this particular score. Mm-hmm. Sorry for a long, no, tortuous no, no. answer. <laughs> no, it's okay. And you say something quite interesting that um, it sort of validated to you that you can means that before that, you are really doubting yourself and your capabilities. Absolutely, absolutely, Marcy. And that is something I want to fight right into my professional career. I, 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 I hope this might come down so I won't jump the, the gun. But I, I, I have had to handle imposter syndrome. And I kind of said, you know what? I mean, even Michelle Obama handled imposter syndrome. When I read a book, Becoming, I knew imposter syndrome can affect anyone. But what happens is uh, coming from a humble background by way of uh, financial uh, financial ability and uh, those times you are not immune to other neighbors giving negative comments or throwing in some jabs at you to make mockery of your family or what you are able to handle and uh, or yourself or what you are able to handle and then... Uh, at that moment in the formative stage, you're trying to understand what is it that I can do. And then uh, for, for for children, I imagine then that your greatest source of uh, trust system would be your parents. So maybe you expect your parents to tell you, yes, you can do this. This is what you're going to do. You're going to rise up to become this strong person. But like I mentioned earlier, my dad would say, I mean, you can you can still do very well as a farmer. You can still do very well as a, as a tailor. You can still do very well as a cattle, uh, you know, uh, harder or, or or rancher. Okay, rancher is a grand one. Cattle harder, you know, because that was the extent of his horizon based on his experience and 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 ability, so to speak. And that kind of creates this uh, inferiority complex in you as a child growing up. 
And uh, even if you start scoring well in high school, in primary school, for example, at one point you pause and wonder, okay, fine, I will be the top student or top pupil in class. But what does that mean to me? Does it actually mean that I will go to secondary school or I'm just doing this for the sake of it? And trust you me, this was common when I was in primary school. And I think it might be music in the ears of people who have more or less experienced the, the period of uh, almost 100% transition from primary to secondary. But getting from primary to secondary school was no mean feat. It wasn't everyone who was going to secondary school after primary school. I mean, we would celebrate, yeah. would celebrate people receiving those admission letters to those big schools and all that. And we would look at them as role models just when they strolled from, 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 from secondary school for midterm or for, or for holidays. I, I actually remember that towards the end of my primary school, there was only one individual who was in university and would more or less like hope and pray that we will see our degree looks like. In my mind, I thought a degree is like a monument <laughs> <laughs> or a statue that someone carries, they are, they are given other than an accolade or an academic achievement. <laughs> so those days are those days based on whatever socioeconomic and political mm. position of the time. And what do you think such kind of an environment does to children? I mean, you are academically gifted, but there are those children who just need a push or just some encouragement so that they can realize their potential. But in an environment where that is lacking, what do you think that does to such kind of children at that formative stage? Thank you, Marcy. I, I, I think that it's a no-brainer. Those, 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 those kind of uh, bringing or that kind of a negative environment absolutely is, is a dream killer and a recipe for frustration because... Evidence is there. Evidence is there. I mean, you, you have gone through the arguments of nature, nature, and we know nature is nothing. Nature is the real deal. We've got scientific evidence showing that if you pick average pupils and average teachers and come and uh, lie to them that we picked you because you are the best, they actually outperform the super performers so much so that if you pick top performers from, say, primary school and take them and tell the teachers that these are average pupils, the energy is gone, the belief is gone, and therefore they become average because of what they believe. You mm -hmm. pick average pupils, bring them, and then bring average teachers and tell them, we have given you the top students. This is scientific experiment written widely about. And tell them, you bring them average students and tell them, we have given you the best students in the country. Trust you me, they breed stars out of those average people. And that just speaks to the evidence that is there of nature. So if nature is wanting, you can as well be assured that nature will not, will not see the light of day. So KCSE sort of reaffirmed that you can and gave you that belief that you can. And you went to medical school. My experience in medical school was medical school is a hard place to be. It really needs you to see things differently. It really needs you to be focused and disciplined. Did medical school do any different to build in your trust in yourself or did it change your perspective in life? What, did, what was your experience in med school? Thank you, Masi. I will take medical school as any other university. And if there is one thing I, meet, I miss about university, especially undergraduate university, is the freedom. The freedom to do 
as you wish within the confines of responsibility of course without without gossip i mean gossip sounds cheap but gossip is, <laughs> gossip is really because as 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 individuals we are, we are a product of how we manage gossip when you read uh, you know sapiens and in the village for example you'll dress in a certain way because you fear okay what will they say so and so sons as certain behaving this way but in university it is same people you can speak english throughout you want no one will say he is pretending he is knowledgeable you can speak swahili if you want no one will say he is pretending he is uh, he is knowledgeable you can belong to this group or the other you are peers you are at certain level you you your fear of being misunderstood is non existent i mean i have never seen another collection of audience that is so comparable or controlled if you are to speak like a scientist is so controlled you can completely feel comfortable and free and and i mean people can <laughs> can can behave whichever way they want in campus but campus humbles you and exalts you in equal measure within very short cycles that is what you understand let me talk about exalting you come to the library you are sitting there you are bored reading about the cell <laughs> which is the first class you tackle in physiology or anatomy and you gravitate to the shelf that has newspapers and you pull out the newspaper for the year that you you you, you finished kcse and you are sitting in the library and you flip the top handed students and it's like you're doing a class roll call so that kind of suddenly again reaffirms to you that you're within the creme de la creme of the society the the converse is you sit your first cut and you think ah i'm going to be top of course i always score a and then you 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 are you are hit with the negative marking of sociology the concepts are not easy to solidify for a, an emerging learner and then you score maybe 40% maybe 50% and you suddenly are jolted back to reality like man this thing is not easy you have to work hard but then the beauty is with time you work hard the next cut comes and the tables turn you have an a or you have a b and the other person who led in the previous cut is where you were so you realize there is no number one or number or, or last in medicine you are all the same all you need to do is pass your exam please just pass your exam I, i think university is such a leveling experience it is such a leveling experience it has taught me to run my race and let people run their race profound profound so what led you back to university to do surgery you could have chosen to do anything else that that question is hard but i will answer it the way i answered it when the panelists asked me why have you chosen surgery and i told them i'm tired of repeating you know repeating tests you know ah repeat hemogram <laughs> ah let's repeat the hemoglobin ah let's add a second line of drugs or something like that so on top of being able to prescribe medicine which is what every doctor can do as a surgeon i have the rare pedestal of intervening with my hands that i can still give injections and tablets and i can still you know come and remove a growth is is a little higher level of satisfaction and 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 fulfillment in terms of a career in medicine and when i now loop it back to what my dad wanted my dad wanted a driver and a mechanic i tell him i got you a mechanic only that 
the mechanic now is a human mechanic who repairs engines while they are still running. We don't have to switch the engine to repair it. That is who a surgeon is, a human mechanic. And we don't turn off the engine, we fix it while it's still running. So yes, really it is the drive to do as much as you can in terms of intervening uh, to save patients' lives or aff- affliction that drove me to doing something interventional mm-hmm. other than something prescriptive. Not in any demeaning way, but I mean, there are those who would rather not intervene a lot and there are those of us who would rather intervene a lot and those in the fields of interventional medicine, mostly surgery and other like disciplines will know you feel a little satisfied more when you've had your brain there and your hands there as well. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Um, when your dad, your parents, your village meets, look at you now, what do they say? That's a difficult question because the perspective is not representative. I might uh, be biased to pick those who sing my praises. <laughs> And there are those who still would wish that I'm a a little more available to the village itself, though I practice in the county where I was born. I'm not necessarily at the village where I grew up, for example. So what I hope they see, there's what they see, but there's what I hope they see. What I hope they see is that your circumstance should not define who you become. That's what James Allen writes in his book, As a Man Thicket. Circumstance does not define a man. It, 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 it reveals him to himself. So circumstance should not define anyone. And I really, every so often I get a chance to speak to the younger ones, you know, who have come after me in the village. I tell them, you think you are born in adversity until you get to university. And then you realize the true adversity. I once spoke about how I was certain that I was the most needed student in that university, that I was going to get a scholarship and a work study. And then I missed out on the scholarship because it was purely merit-based on financial need. And I realized people got were orphans. They grew up in children's homes. They were, they, they were children of single parents. And that kind of also gave a feedback to me that you can always, you know, argue and cry about your circumstances, but sometimes they may not be as dire as someone else's elsewhere. So yes, the village sees someone who came from obscurity to a certain place. I am hopeful that I can scale the heights a little higher, and I do not know exactly how how every single villager <laughs> looks at it. But for sure, there are pockets and pockets of inspiration just looking at the journey. Every so often, I just like to share the journey. A few weeks back, some old friend of mine really pleaded with me to speak to two of his sons who were in high school. One of them is a candidate now, and the other one is in mid-level. And when I was done, you know, trying to tell them, these are the tips I think we can employ, these are the targets I think we can use, these are the checkoffs or monitoring and evaluation metrics I think we can use to make you perform better. In terms of uh, a vote of thanks telling me, okay, thank you, he insisted that I actually just share the story with them. And uh, I, 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 that dawned on me that just sharing the story is better motivation than trying to say, okay, to get an A from a present position of B minus is to do one, two, three. Just seeing this is how I grew up, this is where I went is more 
is, is, is speaks more than, than than the words of encouragement that you can master. And that is what I really hope that, you know, the children from the villages of Lailoba and the entire Mudara and the entire Tigani East sub-county and the country at large can learn from that circumstance does not make you. You do your part. And as Paul Coelho says, if, if, if you want something so badly, Nature will conspire in your favor. Mm. Nature will conspire towards making you achieve it. Absolutely. So um, is this experience from where you came from, what the villagers did for you, is it what led you to going to practice back in Meru? I mean, right now, many doctors, they finish, and everyone wants to be in the big city, you know, big hospitals, but you chose to go back to the village. Big city, big hospital is where big boys play. Oh, so I feel. I, I do not know. I don't want to say that because if I was to say that, then I would extrapolate it and say I should offer charity. That would be the 360 degree satisfaction of what the village did for you and now you're back doing it to them. I will just say it is the times and twists of the industry. Uh, I, I, I actually, when I was clearing up my residency, one of my colleagues was two years ahead of me in the university, was working in Nyeri. And he asked, as he left for the UK to do his super specialization, he asked the team there that you can get this guy if he's not hooked up once he's finished with residency. And uh, they reached out to me. The hospital CEO reached out to me a couple of months before I could sit my exit exam. And I told him, you know, I, have, I still have a contract. I'm still in uh, specialist training. I have my exit exam. So let's talk when I'm done with it. And that that is how I ended up in Nyeri, that particular point in time. And uh, then from Nyeri, when I finished my contract, I, I, I needed to change because I, I, I felt... I, I am the, the the type to get bored easily, so I, I I like to challenge myself. And sometimes, if the workplace does not offer sufficient challenge, then I find solace in challenging myself in my other spheres, personally or professionally, but outside the workspace. So at this point, I wanted to challenge myself in in several domains. One of them either is to challenge myself from an, a managerial position or secondly is to challenge myself from a high level clinical input in terms of you know mini, minimal invasive surgery or something like that and the final bit of course was to challenge myself in terms of the bottom line or the wallet so i can't say i challenge myself in all those domains but i i moved i moved jobs and this one, through another colleague who connected me, actually came calling, and that's how I ended up in Meru. It doesn't mean, like, I am in Meru forever. <laughs> uh, mobility is still a factor of production. It's a fourth mm. factor of production. So I, I, I do not know how long I'm going to be in Meru, but to answer your question, there is a certain element of satisfaction that uh, comes through. For instance, I am on leave, but for the last two or so days I've received numerous calls because someone who knows me from my primary school, from my village, as a relative there, and they need me to kind of 
just check for us you know there's all this always this belief that yeah. until we have someone we who know. knows us inside there yeah. we don't think the food is arriving on time or the medicines <laughs> are being injected by the nice you know a needle that doesn't cause a lot of pain etc i'm just kidding so so yeah sometimes there is that you know uh, this is our person or something like that and we can go there and say hello to him hey, it happens and it gets a certain kind of uh, satisfaction but at the end of the day my farm believe is really you can work in any corner of the world and give that satisfaction and uh, the, i don't have to be there because how much can i do how much can i do as one person to satisfy an entire community is impossible you can only do so much you can only do so much mm. i don't look i don't look at it that way mm. yes. but your experiences are working in nyeri in meru in the village if i may call it that inspired you to write a book Absolutely yes uh, the chronicles of a village surgeon is uh, is a collection of uh, encounters with patients in those in those corridors the farthest corners of the public access to surgery access to safe quality surgical care remains a challenge according to the Lancet Commission on Global Surgery it remains a challenge and when you look at it most of the time it's because of the staffing now when you look at surgeons and other surgical care providers I'm talking about gynecologists and anesthesiologists when you land in a remote setup there is only so much you can do based on your 10 fingers and and your brain on what you've trained on because sometimes you require infrastructural support and sometimes you require equipment support sometimes all those are available but the purchasing power of the person who needs them is not available but in a nutshell when you when you are in the non metropolitan parts of the country and you're able to offer what could be offered in the big cities and see the same results the same satisfaction you 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 get the feeling that maybe how how can i phrase it the utility derived the utiles you know the utility or the utiles derived utiles of satisfaction that that patient drives could be is is higher than if they are to come to this city which has a thousand surgeons to pick from which has a tens of high end facilities to pick from so going there and pushing yourself to deliver what could be delivered here sometimes is 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 a huge satisfaction but i like to use the tagline village surgeon sometimes to a switch <laughs> my feeling of inadequacy because i'm away from the capital cities but not necessarily really and there are quite a couple of stories that are not even born from the village they are born from my training you know a couple mm-hmm. of them the guy mm-hmm. the the the, the, the potbellied guy is from the residency days and i think a couple of other stories but what is encouraging when you're in the village is if the financial ability is there nowadays it's very easy to get all that you need to come from Nairobi and get you to the village there are so many times i've had you know surgeries where i just call a few industry players if from this company can you drive down to nyeri tomorrow early in the morning can you drive down to meru tomorrow very early in the morning so that by 10 am we are in theater and we operate because i need them to bring certain appliances and certain mm-hmm. gadgets i need them to give me certain equipments so that they can come 
I finish the surgery and then they drive back with them. So sometimes you can push the envelope and get that, but there's a lot of input that comes from you as an individual. Mm-hmm. Yes. Is there anything that you think can be done to improve access to surgical care? Obviously, um, devolving or having many more surgeons and anesthesiologists and anesthetists across the country would be a big plus. What would it take for this country to have better surgical care provision? Uh, That's a brilliant question, Marcy, because if we answer that correctly, then we are done and dusted. I remember I was part of a multi-sectoral team that sat with the Minister of Health to define what we call the National Surgical Obstetrics Trauma and Anesthesia Care, or the NSOTA plan. And it was was heartbreaking. I, I, I think you were in pride in that. That that year when we were waiting for the cabinet secretary to come and launch the Ensota plan, and then because of competing interest, I think a uh, few emergencies that came up, the minister was not able to come and launch it. And from there, I have got no idea which shelf in the ministry the, 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 the policy lies in, but in there lies gigabyte upon gigabyte of data that is research-based, that is consultative, that has got specific, you know, implementation matrix with very clear monitoring and evaluation. And therefore, to specifically answer that question in clear and equivocal terms is just to refer every listener to that that, that that document if the ministry is able to implement it. This is where the surgical world is moving. Every left, right and center you will see the launch of, of what we are calling National Surgical Obstetrics and Anesthesia Plans. We call so them what, what, what do they entail? Essentially they will entail manpower provision or human resource provision, infrastructure provision and equipment provision. Those are the capital, you know, the investments. And then, of course, there has to be a quality monitoring <clears throat> tool that looks at how do we make sure that what we've given now is quality, because quality and safety is a must. If you have to break it down to move away from the government and now through it to the employer, because when you come down to the employer, the employer could be the county government, mm-hmm. the employer could be a faith-based facility, the employer could be a private facility. Every healthcare provider, especially a specialist, needs good remuneration, and good remuneration is relative. So you have to look at the person as providing this quality care and being at the call of the entire ecosystem of a hospital. And uh, once you pay them then, and don't look so much at how much uh, they, they return by way of patient seen, but how much they multiply by way of knowing that there is this institution X which has this number of specialists. Because that is where the crux of the matter is. The rubber meets the road when you as a highly skilled health provider, gynecologist, anesthetist, surgeon, physician, sits in a hospital and then the hospital or the employer only looks at the number of patients seen. And then you are engaged with the same way the number of patients a lab has handled. But the lab, the pharmacy, the imaging, the nursing, the consumer booth are related to the prescription of the doctor. So it becomes inaccurate statistically to look at that. Mm-hmm. The foresight and the administration that comes with highly qualified people who have been skilled and interacted with all over also need to come into play. So in a nutshell, uh, pay the specialists well and equip them 
with what they require, which draws the spanner in the works. How do you equip and how do you remunerate them if the patients do not give you enough money? Because, yes, I can do a surgery and I want to be paid 100000 for a surgery, but the patient can only afford 70000 so how, how do you proceed if you are the hospital owner? And I think that's where the challenge comes in now because insurance or funding for healthcare needs to, to be pushed a little higher. It needs to be pushed such that we not only squeeze the bottom line, but we now bring in quality and international best practice as, as, as a matrix to, to look at so that if you have a patient who has who require a certain diagnosis, and therefore the doctor recommends MRI. I don't have insurance telling you, no, do an X-ray and ultrasound. No, but that is subpar quality. True. You see, so that, 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 that's where the crust of the matter comes. So that becomes, brings in the yeah. conversation now of universal health care, because when people have paid prior through some form of social insurance, for example, or an insurance or some contribution somewhere and they don't have to pay out of pocket, then it removes the headache that, you know, um, maybe an MRI is expensive. You now are looking at this is what the patient needs. This is what is prescribed for the patient. Okay. So what next for you, Dr. Rewind? I, next, in terms of uh, in terms of surgery, in terms of uh, there, life in general, or what exactly? There, there is a lot. You are an author. <laughs> yes. You are a motivational speaker. Yes. You are a surgeon. Yes. I mean, there, there is a lot. So yes. I don't know if you are adding something else onto that list. Uh, it's interesting. It's interesting. Every 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 time I keep I keep uh, trying to see how I can get better. I was reading this book. You can see uh, John Maxwell's "Developing the Leader Within You," and the last chapter in this book talks about personal growth. That every time you've reached the mountain, you must look for a higher mountain so that you climb up. So every day is a is is a question for me to grow myself as a person and continue becoming a better surgeon because that's the key area of competence. So I will keep operating. I'm not stopping. I will keep writing. I'm not stopping. I'm keep speaking. I'm not stopping. And uh, hopefully I can get more and more platforms to try to influence surgical care in our republic in a way that, you know, meets the needs of our society without breaking their backs, financially speaking. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dakar. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for your time. Uh, almost 40, 42, almost 45 minutes of your time talking to us about your journey from Lailoba to the city and back to Meru County. Um, we've been having a very inspirational conversation with Dr. Stanley Aruyaru Mwenda. He's a consultant surgeon in Meru County. Uh, is giving us an inspiration about what his life is. And I like what he says, your circumstances should not define who you are and where you're going to. So anyone who feels like they are down and out, it is not yet look within you and you will amaze yourself by what you can do. Thank you very much for your time, for listening in to Doctors and Must with me, Dr. Masi Korir. Tune in next time, same time, for another conversation with another doctor. For any doctor that you'd like us to interview or bring on board to Doctors and Must, you can always reach me at Dr. Masi Korir on Twitter and we'll be able to look for them and be able to bring them on board to this conversation. Thank you. Doctors Unmasked Podcast.